Good evening and welcome to Right Here Radio. We've got a very exciting show coming up full of submissions and a very special interview with guest Marie Kelly to look out for. But before we get into that, Lucy, is there something you need to do? Yes, uh, we'd just like to acknowledge and pay respect to the owners of the land the House of Sin and Studio stand on, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. Sin also acknowledges and pays respect to the elders and traditional owners of the lands our content reaches, as well as the radio stations we broadcast from across the country. Also important to note, guys, Ellie here. Um, also important to note, we are reading creative works tonight and some of the themes covered, it might not be for everyone. So if sensitive or little ears are tuned in, maybe switch stations. But for the rest of you, we've got a great show coming up. We sure do, and we're going to start it off with um, a very first, our first submission from Lara Mayer. Um, this is a really important piece, um, and it does, just as a warning, does have some references to sexual assault. Dear listeners, I walk past him frequently, uneasily. Sometimes he's standing in the aisle up from me. He's buying his macaroni. When he looks at me, my eyes dart to the wristwatch I haven't got on. I pretend and I look away, like I don't notice him, like there's nothing wrong. He smirks at me. He says, hello. My knees are wobbly weak. My legs feel like jello. He doesn't hang his head in shame. To him, it's an itch, a deep-rooted game. My friends have him on Facebook. They don't know my inward war. They never asked why I had that cold sore. Some, well, they just completely ignore. His engagement is celebrated. His newborn baby is toasted too. The presents are all coloured sky blue. I feel confused, nauseated, so I write another haiku. It's been years, his name taunts. It sneaks its way back to my screen. I look down his profile. I'm searching for answers, but they cannot be seen. I'm occupied with finding reasons. I'm looking for signs I missed. I'm looking for why. Why am I not pissed? I'm obsessed with answers, any sort of clue. I think the only way is for him to face exposure. He runs through my mind like some sort of on-stream game. I let him. I can't help it. But when? When is it my turn to reign? I want to look him dead straight in the eye. I want to show him that at night I still cry. The hospitals, lack of privacy, the post-stress, ever-present anxiety, the lost sleep, I'm still avoiding society. I fear he doesn't realise the severity of what he's caused. Maybe he won't ever. Maybe I've spent too long stuck in paused. Is it five years too late to shed light on the case? Half a decade since I've felt any space in my own home base. I forever feel like it's always the wrong time. Is that a sign? Will there not ever be a right rhyme? I'm unsure if this poem will ever sound perfect, include all that I feel it should. Perhaps it's not a rhyme I need to confect, but instead a detailed court testament to project. I can play with words all day long, flows, verses, this wordy song, the scribbles help, just not enough. They're merely a band-aid for when my mind is feeling rough. Mostly, I want to speak. 
without his comeback. I want to show him that my mind can be pitch black and it has a hymn-shaped crack. To express as I please, to give him a taste of my wobbly weak knees, I want to unravel, be mad. I want my turn at hushing him, so bad. There is much I need to say, but where? Where do the hours go in a day? I think and I think. I work myself up. I begin to taste bravery, then all of a sudden, I give up. Most of all, it sounds the same. One problem routinely remains. I can't find my tongue when I go to say his last name. It's stubborn. It's powerful. It's a murder of the soul. My breath is running out in the search for an air hole. My story yearns to be felt. It needs to be enough. Will reporting the truth always be this tough? Will they listen and care? I hold hope, but am I to dare? People have moved on. They're walking ahead. I can't keep up. Should I go back to bed? I'm sure he thinks I'm perfectly fine. I mean, I am. Only he's haunting my mind all the fucking time. I read about his brother B crashing his car into some wall or tree. It sounds irrelevant, but it all adds to the story. Because I feel... I feel fucking sorry. I'm not mad. Is that the maddest thing of all? Why do I not hold hate towards the man who held me against that tainted wall? This poem isn't about my high school crush. It's about the man who raped me. Satisfied in knowing he'd be safe, I'd be kept hush-hush. I've come to realise the right time is right now. This rhyme will do. I'm no longer keeping my lips sealed with fear glue. By choice, I am reclaiming my supposedly lost voice. Years of writing versions of this song. I've had it in me all along. Thank you so much, Lucy, for reading that. And thank you, Lara Maya, for that submission. If that brought up anything for some of our listeners, you can call 1-800-RESPECT. That's 1-800-RESPECT. Yeah, I totally agree. Mm. Now we have a, another submission from Lara. Uh, this one is called To Him. Hello. It's been a while. Years since I spoke to you in the past aisle. Do you accept yet that you're an undeclared pedophile? That smirk you give, it shows you're so sure. You think I'm still hush. The thrill you get from feeling that secretive rush. But have you ever felt? Have you ever felt frightened? Frightened about losing my obedient hush? I'm strong enough. I'm giving that convenient silence the flush. I've had enough. Think twice about your confident wit. I'm giving your confidence in my silence the spit. What will you do? I no longer care. Anything is better than these days all spent in silent despair. Words sound louder from a subdued soul. Up until now you've done a great job turning my words into blackened, out charcoal. I've done my time in pain, confusion. I've confided in shrinks about my apparent delusion. The root of the cause needs to be addressed. Hey, that's you. You've been hanging around. You might as well be my gym shoe. It's time for you to see the shrink. It's time for you to own your shit and think. 
work through the pain you caused young girls like me. Put a final end to your filthy fantasy. That was our second piece tonight from Lara Meyer. That piece was called To Him. Thank you so much for submitting those, Lara. She's a freelance writer from Western Australia. And if you would like to hear more about what she's up to, you can contact her on Instagram. Her handle is at lovestoned.lara or on her blog at larainlife.wordpress.com. Incredibly brave. Yeah. Mm. Thank you, Lara. Moving on to another listener submission, uh, we have Crooked by Claire Harris. The very worst thing about Grace's life was her crooked teeth. Running a close second was sharing a room with her older sister Sarah, who always hogged the fan in summer and pointed it down towards the lower bunk so it only blew on her and not on Grace in the top bunk. Sarah said she was entitled to colder air because she was seven years older than Grace and in the second last year of school. Grace would have rather shared a room with about any of her siblings other than Sarah, but the youngest three girls were all in a room together and it had been decided that in the new house it was better the two boys would share. The third worst thing in Grace's life was her name, Grace. Not that there was anything she minded about it, Grace was her favourite princess and she had a feeling it was better to be named after a princess than a saint. The problem was that in the first week of Grace four, they had been learning about syllables in grammar and Miss White had made the class clap out a number of syllables in everyone's name. Grace was the only one who had to endure the unbearable shame of a single clap. She felt a flush rise to her cheeks as the Cecilias and Carolines and Stephanies and others of the three or four syllable names looked on smugly. Only her two-syllable classmate Clara piped up with a, no miss, it's Grace. As she drew out an elongated vowel sound, she clapped twice in quick succession. But Miss White was no stranger to these claims and was quick to nip them in the bud, pumping her hands together in a loud howl of a clap. Grace, she pronounced, and a small twitter of giggles erupted from one side of the circle. Miss White turned around sharply, arching her eyebrow, and an instant hush fell over grade four. Miss White clapped once more. Grace wanted to point out that Miss White's name only had one syllable, but the teacher cheated and strung the Miss and the White together and made the class clap twice as though it were a single word. Miss White. This seemed to be a terribly unfair advantage of being a teacher, the ability to just mix up things the way you wanted them to be. It just went on to show you could never trust adults. The fourth worst thing about Grace's life was her ex-best friend and number one enemy, Natalie Ryan, a girl so terrible she wasn't named after either a saint or a princess. Natalie Ryan was so terrible that she had once given Grace a heart locket that had B. Fry written on one side of it and end on the other, and then after they had that big fight, she had the nerve to demand it back. Grace had seen the new girl Anusha wearing this end on only three weeks after she had arrived at Clairborn School for Girls in their last year of primary school. But none of these second, third or fourth worst things were as awful as Grace's teeth. When it finally got to be her turn after Sarah and Oliver, her mother asked the 
orthodontist if Grace's teeth were the kind of crooked that made him feel satisfied with his profession. Dr. Lee smiled, revealing his own perfect set of crowns while Grace stared into his cavernous nostrils and tried to count if he had more hairs in the right or the left one. The orthodontist's response became fashioned into a story told and retold in the Sutton family for years, namely that Grace's teeth were so wonky that Dr. Lee declared they made him proud to be an orthodontist. Grace couldn't think of any job worse than staring into people's mouths all day and looking at crooked teeth. She couldn't even bear to look at her own. When she stood in front of the mirror, running a brush through the tangles of her hair before school, she would close her mouth and run her tongue over the four lines of teeth two on the top and two on the bottom, pausing to touch the tip of the canines that pointed stubbornly forward instead of downwards so that even with her lips closed, a little glimpse of white peeked through them on either side of her mouth. She used to hate her nose too, which was shaped just like a button, but Becky McTaggart had told her last year in third grade that she wished she had a nose just like it, and everybody knew Becky McTaggart was the prettiest girl in class. She wished her hair was straight and that the freckles would go away. She read in a book that putting lemon juice on your skin would make the freckles disappear, but even though she stuck into the kitchen once after bedtime and stole a bottle of lemon juice from the fridge to rub it on her arms and face, all she got when she woke up was a sticky mess on her bedsheets and freckles that looked even bigger than before. If she concentrated so hard that her nose wrinkled a little above the part that looked like a button, she could imagine herself smiling with lips that parted like curtains on a stage to a set of straight white teeth like Dr. Lee's. But when she smiled, sure enough, the canines were still pointing straight ahead at their reflection in the bathroom mirror and the two top front teeth crossed over each other like at the feet of a dancer. Grace tried to smile as little as possible at all times, even though it made her family nickname her Grumpy. For as long as she could remember, after her mother came in to say the bedtime prayer, Grace crossed herself and added an extra extra prayer of her own which was less of a prayer and more of a plea bargain. If she woke up in the morning with perfectly straight teeth, she would become a nun just as soon as she finished high school. Or maybe after she had travelled for a couple of years. She was sure God would could wait until she had at least been to Morocco to see the goats that climbed trees before she locked herself up in his humble servitude for the rest of her days. That seemed reasonable. And still, every morning, she woke up and ran her tongue over the jagged rows of her teeth, pausing on the canines, and knew that once again, God had not held up his end of the bargain. Every day began with a renewed disappointment in God that settled into a festering anger. Why didn't he just get on with it? She knew God could do anything he wanted to, so it didn't seem like a big ass to fix one little set of teeth. Miss White was always telling them that if God didn't answer your prayer, it was either because A, you weren't praying hard enough, or B, it wasn't the right thing to ask for and God, in his infinite wisdom, knew best. Grace asked how you would know if it was A or B to figure out if you should pray more or stop praying for the thing you were praying for. She wasn't trying to be funny, but some of the girls laughed, including Rosemary Talbot, who Grace really wished she was friends with, but she wasn't. Miss White raised her left eyebrow. In a quiet and even tone, she said, Grace Sutton, you can sit outside if you find this class so amusing. Grace froze and the world seemed to narrow to just the two of them. Her and Miss White standing before her desk, black bob framing her pale face and rouged cheeks, hair that never moved, even when its owner tossed her head to dart her gaze from one student to another. Grace never uttered a word. I thought so, Miss White remarked dryly in return to the chalkboard. That didn't solve Grace's problem about prayer. 
Not that she doubted God's infinite wisdom or anything, but she couldn't for the life of her figure out how it was better for her to have crooked teeth. She once asked Father George in confession about it. She wasn't sure if it was a sin, but she thought she may as well just mention it after she told him about hitting her brother, which she hadn't really done. She could never remember any of her sins since the last confession, so she made up ones she would probably do at some point in the future, so they could be forgiven in advance. She wondered sometimes if making up sins was also a sin, but then decided it couldn't be, because you couldn't lie to God anyway, since he knew everything. The priest told her not to hit her brother again, like he did every time, and that she should pray for more important things, like the Pope or the school. Grace didn't see why her teeth were any less important than not having rain at the athletics carnival, and they were made to pray for that every single year. It never rained either, so clearly God was listening there. She didn't tell the priest as she was pretty sure it was a sin to answer back to a priest. She also couldn't ask him about making up sins being a sin, because then he would know she made up sins. It occurred to her that a whole school praying at the same time for one thing was more likely to be noticed by God than one little prayer by a 12-year-old girl. With that kind of power, the school should pray for something more useful than no rain at the athletics carnival, like rain for the farmers. What if God was testing her? What if he wanted her to become a nun anyway to prove her faith? Maybe he was waiting for that, and afterwards he would fix her teeth to reward her. You never quite knew with God, he was pretty tricky like that. He was the kind of person who would tell Abraham to sacrifice his son just for the heck of it, to see if he would really do it, and then come charging in at the last minute and go, don't worry about it, Abe. I was only kidding. Sacrifice that lamb instead. Well, that made no sense either if you thought about it, because surely God already knew Abraham would do it, which meant he didn't actually need to pretend to ask him in the first place. Grace got her head into knots with that kind of thinking. Besides, Miss White said there was no contradiction between free will and God knowing what you were going to do with it, so that settled that. If Abraham was having this problem with his teeth, then he would just get on with it and become a nun for sure. Grace wished she could be more like Abraham. Not that it made a difference now. In the Sutton family, Grace's teeth would forever be a source of pride to the orthodontist. She would wear braces for the next three years at least, and she missed the chance for sainthood, possibly forever. God wasn't big on giving people second chances. Anyone who read the story of Adam and Eve could see that. The last time Grace ever ran her tongue over her teeth and made a bargain with God was the night her father died. After that, she knew deep down behind the kindly eyes and the long white beard, God wasn't anything like Santa Claus at all. God was just a mean old man who didn't give a fig about anyone but himself. That there was Crooked by Claire Harris. Uh, You can find her work or you can find her at Claire J. Harris underscore writer on Instagram. Claire, thank you so much for that submission. Yes, thank you, Claire. And if you also would like to hear your work on Right Here Radio, you can email us at radio at gmail.com. That's right here, radio with a W. Now, Lucy, you have another submission from one of our listeners. What can we hear now? I sure do. So I've got a short uh, fiction piece here from Tor Lesut. So we actually had two poems by Tor last week. Um, She is a student of RMIT's Bachelor of Arts in Creative Writing, but she actually came from a 15-year career in banking. So it's quite an interesting um, change there. Wow, love that. Yeah, so this is her piece. um, This is the start of her piece, Princess P, which I'm just going to read the first couple of paragraphs, but I think it's a really good... Uh, example of how to open a story, how to set up 
a story. So here's Princess P. Thanks, Lucy. A single candle illuminates the damp chamber, creating just enough light for the lone warrior to prepare. Rows of metal scales extending from the shoulders to a pleated skirt, iron-clad forearm sleeves and fingerless gloves with spiked knuckles are ceremoniously put on. Leather knee-high boots reinforced around the shins are strapped securely. The warrior spits into dainty hands and wipes the soles of each boot to ensure better traction for the battle ahead. The final touch, a composite leather and chainmail headpiece. A thin double-sided blade and a small elliptical shield, both utilising rare metals folded hundreds of times to ensure the right balance between strength and weight, enhance the nimble warrior's combat style. A rhythmic pulse and low rumble of the crowd outside are felt through the thick stone walls. Small pebbles and dust dislodge as the warrior ascends towards the bright light at the end of the tunnel. The feet-stomping climaxes. An ecstatic crowd erupts as the warrior steps into the arena. It's hard to miss the mountainous man, who was as thick as he was tall, only a stone's throw away. Fierce, cloudy grey eyes scan the warrior before the Hulk lifts his battle axe to the heavens and riles up the crowd. Chants of Heracles ensue. As the beast of a man turns around to acknowledge his followers, a set of blades strapped to his back are revealed. Wow. Thank you, Lucy. And thank you, Tor. What a set up there. Mm. Yes, thank you, Tor, for your submission. Wow. You were so right about that, Lucy, and how to set a scene really well. I think that came through really quickly in that piece. Great move, uh, switching careers, Tor. Yeah. <laughs> Now, uh, I have a piece from another listener, Jasmine Seabrook-Benso, who is a freelance writer based in Perth. And this is a piece in response to a sporting event that happened this week that you are all probably familiar with. And it is called A Response to the Narratives Emerging Around the Gaff Attack. This is by listener and submitter Jasmine Seabrook-Benson. A man hits another man, breaks his jaw. If it had happened outside a bar, where each male body has equal power, he'd be condemned. But this happened on a football field, where the attacker stood superior as a player for the favoured team. His actions, they're rapidly labelled as out of character. But he's a good bloke, they say. He is sorry, they say. It's a tragedy, they say. These statements are the chorus of a symphony that aims to have us forget, replace guilt with regret. This narrative is poison. Take the sport away, replace it with a woman, and the perpetrator as a victim story is much the same. Our culture accepts the despicable as long as it's enacted by the person with most power. We need new narratives where power has no relevance to the judgment of a person's actions. We need new symphonies with choruses that offer no sympathy to men who don't control their violence. They are not victims of their masculinity. They grow from the poisonous root of the most powerful tree. That was a response to the narratives emerging around the gaff attack by Jasmine Seabrook Benson. You're a football fan, Lucy. Were you pretty um, affronted by what happened this week? Um, yeah, well, for those listeners who uh, don't know, um, the incident was that uh, West Coast Andrew Gaff punched Fremantle's 
Andrew Brayshaw in the face um, and he broke his jaw and caved in some of um, Brayshaw's teeth. And I think, I think the most confronting thing about it is that it is very clearly intentional that the ball is not really near them. It's, you know, there's no reason for them to have had that kind of physical rough contact. I mean, AFL is a rough game, but it doesn't need to be that rough. Yeah. I, I quite like, I mean, it's it's comforting to know that um, the fans out there, how much they've erupted from this incident and said, no, actually, this is not okay. So yeah. the response from people there is really interesting. It's good to see. Yeah, exactly. And I think Jasmine makes a great contrast there between violence we accept in sport and the violence that occurs outside it. Absolutely. Footy and feminism, you mm. know, <laughs> sometimes they do go together. That can be our next show. <laughs> <laughs> now we're going to move to an interview with writer Marie Kelly. Uh, she sat down with me earlier this week to discuss her new book, Tales of Teenage Turbulence and Other Terrible Times. Here's our chat with Marie. Marie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a big couple of months for you. Your book, Tales of Teenage Turbulence and Other Terrible Times was published in June. How has it been for you? It's been so exciting because I've been working on this for quite a while. I had a story, which I'm going to read for you guys later, that I'd been sitting on for mm, since 2014 and I didn't know what to do with it and I really liked it. And then last Halloween... I wrote another story and I felt that the two worked in some way and they needed to be in a series. And so I spent since last Halloween uh, creating stories of those awkward moments during adolescence and I'm so excited to share them with everyone and the feedback I've gotten has been so positive. So I'm so happy and so excited to share it with everyone and to talk about it here at Sin. How cool it must be to, you know, write something and then have it put into an actual actual book. But this isn't your, your first book. Uh, you have a few other books, poetry books. Yeah, I do. Uh, so I've got two books of poetry. Uh, one's called Pixel People and the other's called Postcard Poetry. So Postcard Poetry was another one that I've been working on for a while. And it was poems that I'd written while I was travelling and background of each of the poems is where I was at the time so where I took sorry where I wrote the poem I took a photo of where it was that I wrote it and then I have another book which is a short story anthology called Painted Memories and yeah I've got a little kids book called Tigers Play at Hide and Seek which I originally wrote when I was 14 for a school project and it was one of my friends reminded me of it and said well you're a writer you should you know make that one of your books and I said okay so I just did (laughs) (laughs) how how cool now I uh, wanted to ask you I read that the stories in your book your new book uh, tales of teenage turbulence and other terrible times was inspired by true events um, in your life I want to know what is your favorite awkward teenage memory that made the book Ooh, okay. There's a few in there that are based on how I would imagine a situation based on what someone had said. 
or a moment and I imagined it if it got even more out of hand than what it was. But the first story is a true story and there's only a little bit of exaggeration in it and it's called If Peeing Your Pants Is Cool, Consider Me Miles Davis. <laughs> and that's from the quote. It's a quote from Billy Madison and it was just so true to me. It's a story of when I um, wet my pants on stage when I was 11 years old, so not quite a teenager. And I'd completely forgotten about it until I was asked to write a story of one of the most embarrassing things that had ever happened to me. And when I was asked this, I was at a point in my life where nothing embarrassed me anymore. I loved awkward moments. If a moment was getting <laughs> more awkward, I would try and make it even more awkward. And then I remembered this moment and I thought, oh, wow, how did I forget about this? And so I just explored that memory to its fullest. And now it's the first story in the book. Wow. Peeing your pants and uh, immortalizing it in print. There's, yes. there's something there. That's, fen- that's phenomenal. <laughs> now, this, this stuff, your life experiences, is that sort of what you most like to write about? Yeah. I've always had the thought that you should write what you know. If you write what you know, then your writing is more easily accessible for your reader and easier for you to get the words out and for it to flow and then you have more fun writing and I had a a lot of fun writing this stories yeah it was it was a lot of fun yeah now before we get into your reading which we will in just a moment the last thing I wanted to ask do you have any advice something you've picked up along the way that you'd share with young writers Ooh. so I do tutoring at a writing studio so I'm always giving feedback for young writers. I find for me, when I'm proofreading something, I can't proofread on a screen. Um, So what I do is I change the font and trick my mind into thinking that I've never read it before. uh, So that when I proofread, it looks completely different to how I've written it. And then my other word of advice is write first, think later, then write again. So get all your ideas out, then go over it, make sure it makes sense, and then rewrite it. Words of Wisdom by Words with Marie Kelly. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. No worries. Thank you. And now we're going to play you uh, an excerpt from Marie's book, Tales of Teenage Turbulence and Other Terrible Times. This is the opening story in her book. Thank you again, Marie, for joining us. And here's her story for you now. I've wet my pants more times than I can count. I've wet my bed more than I've wet my pants. It creeps up on me, then bam, there I am with my bladder almost bursting, desperate for a loo. Sometimes I realise too late. Other times I barely make it. It was always me on car trips that made mum and dad pull over because I needed to go. To help me stop bedwetting, my parents ordered a wet sensor for under my bed sheets. It was this huge rubber square that lay under my waist. It wasn't comfortable to sleep on at all. It would feel moisture, then set off an alarm waking me up. My name said wets the bed next to it on a student list for excursions and camps. When other children found one of the lists and read it, I told them it was a mistake 
and should have been for my younger sister. I don't think my sister has ever wet the bed in her life. I never spoke about it with anyone. My parents were anti-sleepovers, so no one saw that alarm box or felt the rubber pad under my sheets. I moved to a new school and thought I was lucky to have a fresh start of no bed wetting and no one knowing either. No one at this school had seen any class list with my shame written on it. Then Year 5 camp came along. I awoke on the very first night swimming in drenched pyjamas and a sleeping bag that absolutely reeked. I had a shower, packed away my sleeping bag and pretended it was too hot for me at night. There was nothing to be embarrassed about if no one knew. Six months had passed since that camp and I hadn't wet the bed since. I had a few close calls with wetting my pants but I felt more in control of my bladder. Tonight was Year 6 graduation night and every Year 5 had to attend and perform. I was going to be singing in the choir. We were currently waiting in the audience so we could swap places with the year sixes. We'd be on a stage and they'd be in the audience watching us sing for them. I was reading the program for the night when a warm tingling feeling crept down my spine. I needed to go pee. I needed to go now. My head went back to the program to see how much time I had. There was one song between this one and the one I needed to be on stage for. I turned my head around to suss out when I could move and how many people I'd disturb. Probably need to exit to the right. I shifted in my seat, ready to make a run for it. The song playing ended. All the year fives around me stood up. I'd read the program wrong. We were performing now. I tried to sneak away via the stage exit, but my last hope was blocked by three cellos and two headmistresses. My bladder was throbbing in pain. I clenched my teeth and fists and walked into position on the carpeted risers. We had two songs to sing. One was a school song. There was a part in the school song where we had to stomp. The line went, At work we study with the best, of knowledge we pursue the quest, and lazy shirkers we detest. And the entire school would stomp on the word detest. When we reached that part, I couldn't hold it in any longer. It was as if the stomp was a lever to open the gate of a dam. I was peeing. I was peeing on stage. I tried to stop it, but I couldn't. It was uncontrollable unstoppable. It just kept going and going. I was too afraid to look down. My legs were stinging. My right sock was soaked. I quickly wondered if it had turned yellow. My ears were ringing and burning. I could hear that bloody alarm that used to live under my bed. I looked down and gasped when I saw this huge dark shape on the carpet growing and spreading underneath my feet. The girls on either side of me must have heard because they both looked down, saw the mess, and then stared at me in disbelief. What do I do? What do I say? What will they think? Are they going to tell people? I stayed perfectly still until I knew I could escape. The concert ended and I raced to the bathroom, panicking, crying, and trying to clean myself up. The worst part was sitting alone, waiting half an hour in soaked and smelly underwear, shoes and socks for my parents to pick me up. Great. Thank you, Marie Kelly. That was an interview we had earlier this week with Marie Kelly and her reading the start of her new book that's out now. If you'd like to hear more about what she's up to, you can follow her at Marie Kelly Writes on Instagram. That's Marie with an I-E. Thank you so much for joining us, Marie. Now, moving on, we've had so many great submissions this week. But now I'm going to read you an old favourite from David Maloof. This is called A Classroom in the 50s. 
a gold Victorian fob watch tick-tocking through the long afternoon of the 50s. Hands, fixed at a time in 16 when a bullet stopped you in no man's land or shock when thin ice cracked. At Jenna, four summers laid down, war jokes, war stories, like rare champagne misfiring each Thursday in your smile. We slouch and sigh. Time moves electric on the wall, behind us and in steel cases on our wrist. Antimagnetic. Proof, unlike ourselves, against all shocks that flesh is heir to, the boredom unto death. You talk of the spirit, Shelley at Pisa, air vents roar. Beyond your voice, a landscape, treeless, unarcadian, defines us, low sprawl of shoulders, learning early their shrug of non-commitment, the cramp of a lifestyle. Till now, at twelve years' distance, we're closer. Time grows small between us. No man's land is wider than we knew. And the stopwatch is not wrong exactly, but dead right on two occasions at least in every day. That was A Classroom in the 50s by David Maloof. I have a fun fact about David Maloof. Oh, do tell us someone else. So, <laughs> he's a very famous Australian writer, but he also shares a birthday with me. Oh, wow. Yes, the 20th of March. Wow. What uh, things do you think you share with David Maloof other than a birthday? Is there anything there that you've got in common? I mean, a star sign. Well, yes. <laughs> exactly. And um, crazy levels of talent. So, <laughs> Oh, that goes without saying. Wait, right, is David Maloof a radio star too? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Thank you, Lucy. So much love in the studio for that. <laughs> hmm. Now uh, on to a listener submission. Uh, this piece here is a very short piece by uh, Jordan Bellow. It's titled Affinity Line. It reads, He's sitting on the train now, like the adventure of the curious tracks. He's getting caught up in the lives around him, in the people and the sound of it all. From the fluid motions to the echoing squeeches, he's feeling it all. He's feeling it to his core. Visceral, beautiful, really sets the scene and short and sweet. Yeah, I really like that one. Thank you very much for reading that, Ellie. Thank you, Jordan, for submitting. Um, and I suppose a reminder that, you know, we want your pieces long, short, or somewhere in the middle. So send them on through to rightheareradio at gmail.com. Um, we're going to go to another quite a short one now. Um, this is by Rudy Francisco. So he is a Belizean writer from um, San Diego, California. Um, you can find him on Instagram at at Rudy Francisco and also online IamRudyFrancisco.com but this is his short piece called Sip I take my compliments the same way I take my coffee I don't drink coffee the last time I did it seared my entire mouth and I couldn't taste anything for three days I'm still learning how to let endearment sit until it's ready to be consumed hold it to my lips and sip slowly that was Sip by Rudy Francisco. And that was actually a um, listener request by my sister, Grace. So <laughs> thank you for that one, Grace. <laughs> thank you to all our family members listening. 
Hey, Mum. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm going to read a piece by Alexa Chung from her book, It. The problem with heartbreak is that nobody can help you when you're heartbroken. Nobody and nothing. Not the films you watch alone, desperately searching for a character who feels the way you do. Not the glasses or bottles of whiskey you keep by your bed. And certainly not Instagram. Instagram will not mend your broken heart, despite your best efforts to post pictures of yourself looking happy. Every time you post a picture of yourself to Instagram looking fake happy, a fairy dies. Fact. Also, scrolling through photos of girls your ex may or may not be shagging won't help you. You need to remind yourself that the right filter can be fantastically flattering and she probably doesn't look that good in real life. Sometimes when I need answers, I like to take my questions to Google. I have Googled, how long does heartbreak last? The result, more popular than that, was how long does heartburn last? This implies people suffer from heartburn more than they do heartbreak, which is a good thing because heartbreak sucks way fucking more than acid reflux ever could. Weirdly though, a broken heart does physically hurt. It feels heavy, like someone is sitting on your chest. Sometimes you wake up with pins and needles in your right arm. I met a girl who told me that an acupuncturist told her that if this happens, you have a broken heart. The irony of a pin and needle therapist being an expert on needles and pins is fantastic. And that's the other thing it'll do to you. Heartbreak will force you to strike up conversation with anyone who will listen and who might be able to tell you it's going to be okay. There are upsides to despair. You can wear a blanket instead of a coat and your friends won't judge you. You can smoke indoors because nobody will have the heart to tell an inconsolable girl that a smoking ban has been in place for eight years. And you find out that people are very nice and that they care about you even if the person you care about most doesn't. When somebody makes you laugh when you're sad, that's the most enjoyable laugh you'll ever experience. On a positive day during an outdoor and legal cigarette break, I told a friend that I was fine and trotted out the line, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, to which she replied deadpan, that's not true, that which doesn't kill you makes you want to die. One night in Paris, I saw Marianne Faithful sitting in the corner of a bar. I'm a self-confessed groupie. I have never dated a man who was not a lead singer. To me, Marion Faithful is the holy grail of groupiedom. So of course, in a drunken haze, it was fashion week, I barreled over to her and just straight up asked her how she got over Mick Jagger. Because how? How do you get over Mick Jagger? She said, darling, you can't believe the lyrics. I don't really know what this means. So I asked my mum instead about heartbreak, not Mick Jagger, I wish. And she told me, nobody goes through life without having their heart broken. And one day you'll wake up and it will be okay. That was Alexa Chung from her book, It. That piece was on love, on heartbreak, excuse me. <laughs> I think uh, I like that piece so much because it's something we can all relate to, you know. Exactly. We've all been through it. Scrolling Instagram, watching rom-coms, hoping it all gets better. Except the only thing is that she's only ever dated lead singers, which is not something we share. Not something I can relate to, no. (laughs) (laughs) No. No. (laughs) It's still a lovely piece. Still a lovely piece. Mm. Now, we are going to finish up 
uh, with in just a moment with a recording of Shelby Davis reading Audre Lorde's poem Black Mother Woman, an iconic piece. But before we do listen to that recording, uh, I'm going to read a excerpt from Audre Lorde's um, essay, Poetry is Not a Luxury. It's a prose piece written in the 70s. Away we go. The quality of light by which we scrutinise our lives has direct bearing upon the product which we live and upon the changes which we hope to bring about through those lives. It is within this light that we form those ideas by which we pursue our magic and make it realised. This is poetry as illumination, for it is poetry that we give name to those ideas which are, until the poem, nameless and formless about to be birthed but already felt. That distillation of experience from which true poetry springs birth thought, as dream births concept, as feeling births ideas, as knowledge births precedes understanding. For each of us as women, there is a dark place within where hidden and growing our true spirit rises, beautiful and tough as chestnut, staunch in against your nightmare of weakness and of impotence. These places of possibility within ourselves are dark because they are ancient and hidden. They have survived and grown strong through that darkness. Within these deep places, each one of us holds an incredible reserve of creativity and power, of unexamined and unrecorded emotion and feeling. The woman's place of power within each of us is neither white nor surface. It is dark, it is ancient, and it is deep. For women, then, poetry is not a luxury. It is a vital necessity of our existence. It forms the quality of light which within we predicate our hopes and dreams towards survival and change, first made into language, then into idea, then into more tangible action. Poetry is the way we help give name to the nameless so it can be thought. The farthest horizons of our hopes and fears are cobbled by our poems, carved from the rock of experiences of our daily lives. As they become known to and accepted by us, our feelings and the honest exploration of them become sanctuaries and spawning grounds for the most radical and daring of ideas. They become a safe house for the difference so necessary to change and the conceptualization of any meaningful action. Right now, I could name at least ten ideas I would have found intolerable or incomprehensible and frightening, except as they came after dreams and poems. This is not idle fantasy, but a disciplined attention to the true meaning of it feels right to me. We can train ourselves to respect our feelings and to transpose them into a language so they can be shared. And where that language does not yet exist, it is our poetry which helps to fashion it. Poetry is not only dream and vision, it is the skeleton architecture of our lives. It lays the foundations for a future of change, a bridge across our fears of what has never been before. That was an excerpt from Audre Lorde's essay, uh, prose piece, Poetry is Not a Luxury. It was written in the 1970s. Now we'll listen to Shelby Davis read 
her poem Black Mother Woman in full. You would have heard an excerpt of that poem in uh, in that piece I've just written, I've just read there. Thank you so much for joining us here on Right Here Radio tonight. You've been with Eleanor, Lucy and Ellie. We'll see you next week. I cannot recall you gentle, yet through your heavy love I have become an image of your once delicate flesh split with deceitful longings. When strangers come and compliment me, your aged spirit takes a bow, jingling with pride. But once you hid that secret in the center of furies, hanging me with deep breasts and wiry hair, with your own split flesh and long-suffering eyes buried in the myths of little worth. But I have peeled away our anger, down to the core of love, and look, mother, I am a dark temple where your true spirit rises, beautiful and tough as chestnut, stanching against your nightmare of weakness. And if my eyes conceal a squadron of conflicting rebellions, I learned from you to define myself through your denials. Like us at facebook.com slash synmedia. Follow us on Twitter at synmedia. And come visit us at syn.org.au.